Mark chapter 6. Uh, this passage we're on today, as you see on your sheet, we're, we're on verse 14 through 29, just coming through the book of Mark. And uh, this passage is uh, it's about a faithful, bold servant of God coming under uh, some heavy suffering and persecution. So let me talk to you for a minute. Let me talk to you for just a minute about suffering Christians. I want to talk to you about some suffering Christians. About 30, 40 years ago, young girl, a teenager, normal girl, she liked horse riding, hiking, tennis, swimming, just a normal girl. She became, a, she got converted to the Lord about, like I said, 30, 40 years ago, converted to Christ, new believer. She begins to pray and ask God, God, I want a closer walk with you, God. Give me a closer walk with you. She starts praying. Now, surely God would give this young, this new convert success and health and wealth and a good life, right? Just a short time after her conversion, she dives into the Chesapeake Bay. She misjudges the shallowness of the water, breaks her neck. She's in the hospital bed. She's paralyzed, utterly distressed, utterly depressed, suicidal in her thinking. And now she's a quadriplegic. Her name is jo Johnny Erickson Tata. If you never heard of her, you should look her up. She's a Jesus-loving woman now who goes all over the place giving hope to people that are disabled that, that, that Christ is all. That you can find all satisfaction in Christ Jesus. Listen to how she describes suffering. Suffering. Suffering is that jackhammer every day breaking apart my rocks of resistance. Suffering is the chisel that God is using to chip away at my self-sufficiency and my self-consumption. Suffering is that sheepdog snapping and barking at my heels, driving me down the road to Calvary where otherwise I do not want to go. Suffering provides the gym equipment to own which my faith can be exercised. Now how can a woman like this think of suffering in such a positive light? How can she think of suffering? This seems extreme, right? To think of suffering in this sort of way. Let me give you another example. John and Betty Stan, young married couple, laboring, early 1900s, laboring in China as missionaries. They got a sweet little baby, about three months old. Sweet little baby. They've become intimately connected to a village there in China where they've won some lost souls and they preach the gospel there. Now, surely, surely, here's these people in service to God for His glory and for the salvation of souls. Now, surely God will take these servants of the Lord and they give them long lives. God would just give them long lives of faithful service. People being saved, thousands. Churches planted, hundreds. Surely God would give them that, right? A rebel group invades the village. Many people killed. Everybody's terrified. The young couple's taken captive and they're demanding, you give us money. And they don't have the money to give to them. Now, Right in the middle of that, John Stam writes a letter. This missionary couple, they write a letter back to their mission organization. And I want you to imagine for a minute, we got people that we send out from our church and they're there in another land somewhere, preaching the gospel, making disciples, and we, Grace Community Church, receive this letter back 
Here's the letter. Dear brethren, my wife, baby, and myself are today in the hands of communists. I tried to persuade them to let my wife and baby go, but they wouldn't let her. They want $20,000 before they'll free us, which we have told them we are sure will not be paid. All our possessions and stores are in their hands, but we praise God for peace in our hearts and a meal tonight. God grants you wisdom in what you do, and for us, fortitude, courage, and peace of heart. God is able, and He's a wonderful friend in such a time. The Lord bless and guide you, and as for us, may God be glorified, whether by life or by death, in Him. John Stan. Can you imagine getting that letter? Now surely, these are faithful servants of God. Surely God will give a miraculous deliverance from these rebel groups, right? God will just give a miraculous deliverance for these people. A short time later, they're stripped of their clothing. Bound up tight in ropes. Led out to the execution. John Stam's told to kneel down with sharp language. He kneels down and with a swing of a sword, he's beheaded. He's executed in a moment. His wife quivers for a moment. Drops down beside him. And without, without even seeing it coming, she too joins him and she's beheaded. Now, did, did these sufferings catch John and Betty Stam off guard? Did it catch them off guard? Did they not know this was coming? Listen to a piece of a poem written by her, the wife, before their martyrdom. Afraid? Of what? To do by death what life could not? Baptized with blood a stony plot? Till soul should blossom from that spot. Afraid of that? What is this radical view of suffering? What's this radical view of suffering? It's like they welcome it. It's like they enjoy it. What is this view of suffering that we're reading about? And does it exist among us? They didn't see it as something to be avoided. Something to be welcomed. Let me give you one more. William Tyndale. In the 1500s endured a great, great amount of suffering. Great amount of suffering. He was taking the Bible and getting it into the English language so the common man could read it. And he was burned at the stake for it. But before he was burned at the stake, he had a friend named John Frith. John Frith. And John Frith was about to be burned alive for believing in Jesus and for preaching Christ. He was about to be burned alive. And so William Tyndale writes him a letter. Here's a piece of that letter. What would you write, John Frieda? Here's a piece of that letter. Your cause is Christ's gospel, a light that must be fed with the blood of faith. If when we be buffeted for, good, for doing good, we suffer patiently and endure, that is acceptable to God. For to that end, we were called. For Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in His steps. Amen. What kind of view of this, what kind of view is this of suffering? He didn't say, I'm sorry brother you're in that, I'm praying that you get out of it because you don't deserve to burn at the stake. He didn't say that, he writes this letter. In fact he says, this gospel that you carry, it must be fed with the blood of faith. What is this view of suffering? Where does this come from? If West Brewer in North Korea was coming under the same suffering, our brother, 
what letter would you write in? Suffering and persecution, like we're about to get into here in our passage. Suffering and persecution are the norm in the scriptures. It's just normal. It's just normal. And all throughout Christian history, suffering and persecution has been seen as normal. It's just the normal way of life. In fact, the word martyr, I'll say, I'll say it quickly. The word martyr, if you go back to the origins of that word, comes from a Greek word martyrs. And it's found in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 in our Bible plus other places where it says in Acts 1 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses. When we think of martyr, we don't think witnesses. We think witnesses who die for the faith. But what has happened is that word martyrs in the Greek, so many people going out as witnesses of Christ and so many people dying and suffering and dying. So much so in our New Testament that today when we think of the word martyr, we don't just think witness. We think witness who has suffered and died. It's the norm. It's just the norm. Now, as we talk about this today, and we're about to get right into our text, I want to throw this question out there. I'm going to ask you again at the end of this time together. Here's the question. What will be the number one hindrance to our church? What will be the number one hindrance to our church in taking the gospel to the unreached and planting churches there? Let me ask it another way. We say often that we as a church want to preach the gospel, make disciples, and we want to do that in unreached places, places that have no access to the gospel. What will be the biggest hindrance to us taking the gospel and planting churches in those unreached places? And I'll give you a suggestion for an answer. I'll call it and I'll give you this name and you can, you can remember this as I talk today. First Peter chapter four, verse one. It's a first Peter four mind. What will hinder us from taking the gospel to the nations if we don't have a 1 Peter 4 mind? You say, what is a 1 Peter 4 1 mind? What is that? Well, 1 Peter 4 1 says this. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Since Christ suffered, arm yourself with the exact same mind. A mind to suffer. A mind that says, if Christ be exalted and the gospel be advanced, so be it that we suffer. And if we don't have this mind, like these examples, the examples I just give you, John and Betty Stam, Johnny, Erickson, Tata, these, these examples, did they have the mind, a First Peter 4-1 mind, a mind to suffer? Do we? And I want to encourage you quickly from the beginning here that the mind to suffer is not just about martyrdom, but Paul said, I die daily, not just at the end, but I die Daily is what Paul said. Day to day. You see it in every choice that you make, that you die to yourself, die to what's good for you, for the exaltation of Christ. And if your ultimate desire is to exalt Christ, you do it with great joy as you die daily. 1 Peter 4, 1, mind. Well, let's do this. We're about to get into this March 6, where we're at. Let me pray for you. Father, help us as we open your word and read these scriptures right now. God, help us to see your glory in your word. 
Help us to be charged by you to obey and to walk with you, God. Give us direction on what you want us to do. God, if you, by your spirit, teach us and pour out wisdom. By your spirit, empower me, God, to preach your word. Empower everyone here to hear with all readiness. God, if you do that, then this is profitable. So I ask you, Lord, come and do that. God, please give us this mind that you told us to have, this mind to suffer. God, it seems hard in this place, so much comfort, so much ease. And I just ask you, God, that you would come hard against our natural tendencies. Come against our flesh, God. Kill it, Lord. And I ask you, God, that you would move us by your spirit to be conformed to your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Mark chapter 6. Now, we're on verse 14 through 29, and we're going to kind of read it. I know usually we read it from the beginning, but for time's sake, we're going to read this passage kind of piece by piece, okay? And let me say this first about the context. If you take the context of Mark 6, 14 through 29, the larger context from verse 1 all the way to verse 30, if you take that larger context, what, what you have in this context, you have Jesus coming to his hometown, Nazareth. He's preaching the gospel, and he's rejected. He is utterly Rejected. That's in verse 1 through 6. Jesus is marveling. He's shocked because of the unbelief of these people in Nazareth. But Jesus presses on, going to town after town, preaching the gospel. Mark chapter 6, verse 6. Then in verse 7, you got Jesus calls the 12 to himself. He calls them to himself and he's getting ready to send them out. Remember, these are the ones that he said. He said, he said, follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. Well, he's getting ready to send them out as fishers of men. Their first missionary journey, he's going to send them out. Then you get to our passage. That's verse 7 through 13. Jesus sends them out. He sends them out. And then verse 14 starts our passage. And our passage today from verse 14 to 29 seems so random sometimes. Then you get a story about Herod and how Herod knows about Jesus and how Herod beheaded John the Baptist. And that goes all the way to verse 29. Then you get to verse 30 and that team that he sent out, they return. They come back. So what's up with this? Why? Why does Jesus right after? Why do we have this in Mark? Right after Jesus sends out the 12 on their first missionary endeavor here. After he does that, then we get this story from verse 14 to 29 about Herod killing John the Baptist. We get this story and then they come home after this story in verse 30. Why? What's Mark's intention? What does God want to teach us in that? And we'll dig in and discuss the reason for that placement a little bit later. Now let's read verse 14 through 16. Verse 14. Now King Herod heard of him for his name had become well known and he said John the Baptist is risen from the dead and therefore these powers are at work in him others said it is Elijah and others said it is the prophet or like one of the prophets but when Herod heard he said this is John whom I beheaded he has been raised from the dead so what you have in this verse you see that Jesus has become famous King Herod knows about Jesus. Jesus has become famous. King Herod knows about him. Who is Herod? If you dig into who Herod is, it gets a little confusing because a lot of people are called Herod. They're given that title throughout 
this uh, throughout the Gospels and in Acts. Okay, who you have? You got this man named Herod the Great. When Jesus was born, Herod the Great was the one that sent soldiers into Bethlehem to kill all the babies two and under to try to exterminate the Christ. That was Herod the Great. He had four sons. And these four sons, they divided up the kingdom and they're called Tetrarchs, which means a ruler of the fourth, a ruler of a fourth. Tetrarchs. And one of those is Herod Antipas, which is who we're looking at now. Herod Antipas. Now, King Herod had heard about Jesus's fame and Jesus's fame was just spreading everywhere. And he had an opinion about Jesus. What was his opinion? And you see it in verse 14 and you see it in verse 16. His opinion was that Jesus must be John the Baptist risen from the dead. Now, why do you think that? Why did he think that? Verse 14 says at the end of verse 14, it says John the Baptist is risen from the dead and therefore these powers are at work in him. He saw Jesus and the powers that were at work in him. And he said, that has got to be John the Baptist risen from the dead. You have got to be doing some serious, powerful, authoritative stuff for somebody to look at you and say, that must be a man risen from the dead. He's a Jesus is walking in power and he's displaying his power in such a way that people think that's a man risen from the dead. What do you think that Herod heard about Jesus? What did he hear about Jesus that brought him to this conclusion that this powerful man must be John the Baptist risen from the dead? What did he hear about Jesus? Well, you know from Luke chapter 3, 1 that Herod is the Tetrarch of Galilee. He's in Galilee. He's over Galilee. And Galilee is the region where up to this point, Jesus has done almost all of his ministry. Almost all of his miracles in Galilee. And Herod's over Galilee. So what did he hear? What did Herod hear? Surely Herod heard that there was a city in his region in Galilee named Capernaum. And in that place, sin and disease had almost been eradicated. You remember that in Mark chapter 1? When all the town gathered to Jesus and he just starts healing, casting out demons, healing every disease, every person that came to him. Do you remember that? Can you imagine a town with no sickness and no disease? And surely Herod heard that that had happened. And he said, this is Jesus. He heard root word that Jesus is the origin of that. What else did he hear about Jesus? The ruler, he's the ruler of Galilee. Surely Herod heard that Jesus had multitudes, vast multitudes of people gathering around him by the Sea of Galilee. You remember he had to have a boat, an escape boat ready. That's how many people were around him. And left and right, demons being cast out and lepers being healed. He hears about this stuff. What else does Herod hear about John the Baptist. Surely Herod heard about that megastorm. Remember the megastorm on the Sea of Galilee? Could you see Herod huddled up in his house somewhere scared because the megastorm's coming off the sea? Maybe it hit his house. I don't know. Could you imagine that? Could you, could you think he heard of this megastorm? And he heard from the witnesses of all the boats that are out on the sea that there was a man who stood up and rebuked that storm and it stopped. Think Herod heard about this? Oh, what about... Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. You think you think Herod knew him? Or at least heard of Jesus coming in and raising that man's daughter from the dead? Regardless of what Herod had heard, he was mesmerized by the power of Jesus before he ever even met Jesus. Jesus is so famous that everybody's talking about him. Look at the verse. Not only is Herod saying that, but look at verse 15. So Herod thinks he's John the Baptist, verse 15. Others said it's Elijah. Others said it is the prophet. Everybody's got an opinion. 
So I think Jesus is this person. I think Jesus is this person. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody's talking about Jesus. His fame has spread. Now, one of those opinions said, I think he's Elijah. I think he's Elijah, they said. So Jesus is displaying his power in such a powerful way that people are saying, I think that's the prophet of old, Elijah. You know, the one who, who spoke in the rain stopped for three years and he spoke again and it came back. You know, the one who called down fire from heaven and it, it burned up the sacrifice or he called down fire from heaven and destroyed his enemies. The one that raised the little boy from the dead. The Elijah that never died, but chariots of fire picked him up in a whirlwind and took him into heaven. And they said, they're looking at the power of Jesus going, that can only be explained by that's Elijah. Jesus is powerful. Malachi 4, 5, it was prophesied that Elijah would come. It says this, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And some people said the only way we can explain what's going on with Jesus is he must be the fulfillment of that word. That's Elijah, prophet of old. Now, these people, every one of them, they're giving it their best shot, right? That's Elijah. That's one of the prophets. That's John the Baptist. They give it their best shot of who he is. And every one of them is wrong. And they're falling infinitely short. To describe who Jesus is. Why do I say that? Because Jesus Christ is greater than every man that has ever walked the face of this earth. He is infinitely greater than John the Baptist. He is infinitely, Jesus is infinitely more powerful than Elijah the prophet. He's infinitely wiser than all the prophets. Bought up into one in the Old Testament. Jesus, no man has ever compared to King Jesus. Listen to Jeremiah 10, 6. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your rightful due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdom, there is none like you. Zero. All the prophets, they received a word from God and they delivered that word. Jesus is the word made flesh. John the Baptist even looks at Jesus at one point. And John the Baptist is called by Jesus in Matthew 11, 11, the, the, the greatest man, man born of a woman. And John the Baptist hits his face and he says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and loose Jesus' sandals. I'm not even worthy to do that. He's infinitely greater than John the Baptist. All the prophets, uh, Elijah himself, John the Baptist, they never showed the infinite love that Christ Jesus has shown. Listen to this love. His love that he actually carried our sins. John the Baptist couldn't do that. It's love. He wore our filthy rags. Elijah could not do that. He faced our guilt. He took our punishment. Jesus absorbed our wrath. He bore our eternal pain. Jesus died our death. He purchased our freedom and he lavished unending love on us. He is infinite in love and no man is like him. He's infinite in power. Infinite in power. The mountains melt like wax at his presence. Infinite in understanding. He knows, he calls the number, he calls the name of the stars. He, he, the number of stars, he knows them all by name. This is Jesus. He's greater than every man. You can't compare him to men. He has no equal. And yet, Herod seems convinced in verse 16 that Jesus is John the Baptist, risen from the dead. And it seems that he thinks this because he feels guilty. Because what we're about to find out in a moment is that Herod is the one that put 
John the Baptist to death. Let's go to verse 17. Verse 17 through 20. What you're going to see here is a bold servant of the Lord. The bold servant of Jesus. He's going to be despised and detained. Verse 17. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore, Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man. And he protected him, and when he heard him, he did many things, and he heard him gladly. Now here we see Herod putting John into prison. Herod putting John into jail. Why did Herod put John into prison? Because John is boldly calling out Herod's royal sinfulness. He's calling it out. He's, he's looking at this. This man has married his brother's wife. This is wicked idolatry. This, this is, this is, uh, to come against your own brother, betrayal of your own brother. And this is against God's law, which says in Leviticus 18, 16 says this, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. Leviticus 20, 21 says this. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. So can you imagine this? John the Baptist takes something. He says to the king, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Can you imagine the people, the people, the other rulers of the land that were disgusted by what Herod did? They were disgusted by it. And yet they trembled in fear. And they would never look at Herod face to face and call him out on his sin. They would never for a moment do that. Yeah, sure, many people probably talked about Herod behind his back, right? But nobody gets in Herod's face. They had a fear of man and specifically a fear of Herod. Did you know that a fear of man is sinful? To have a fear of man, this is sin. The fear, the fear, all through the scriptures, you see God saying, do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Do not fear. You can trust in God. Don't fear. To fear, to have a fear of man is sinful. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says this. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. So to fear man is a direct opposition to what the Lord Jesus has said. The fear of man is a, is a sin. And Proverbs, the book of Proverbs also says it's a snare. The fear of man is a snare. It will trap you and it will strangle you. Revelation 21.8 even takes the fear of man and it puts it all right up next to all kinds of sins that will lead you straight to the lake of fire. Revelation 21.8 says that. It says, the cowardly, the cowardly shall have their part in the lake of fire. Could you see the leaders in Galilee? Think about the leaders in Galilee there. Could you see them cowering in fear? They would never go face to face with the king, with King Herod, and say these kind of things to them. Could you see them cowering and even trying to justify? Could you see them trying to justify the reason that they don't say anything to the king? Maybe they use Proverbs 20 verse 2. Listen to this. The terror of the king is like the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him, the king, to anger forfeits his life. And they read that verse and say, we don't do that. We don't forfeit our life. Nobody comes to King Herod and confronts him about his sin. But there is one man who is unafraid. And he steps up and he said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. In Mark 6, 18. Now the tense of this, the, the, 
the wording of this sentence in the Greek gives you the idea that it's not just it's not just that he said it one time, but over and over again he kept saying it. It's not lawful for you. He probably quoted these Leviticus verses to him. It says, "Not lawful for you." To have your brother's wife over and over again. He's fearless. John the Baptist is fearless in the face of one who could kill his body. And you also notice the personal pronoun. Personal pronoun. He said, it is not lawful for you. He's now talking about these things behind Herod's back. He's right in his face. He's telling him, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He's speaking directly to him. This is fearless face-to-face confrontation with a man who could kill his body. He knew Proverbs 20 verse 2 that if you confront the king and you make him angry, you forfeit your life. He knew that. But he was what Proverbs also says is the righteous who is bold as a lion. Many people shrink back. Shrink back. They soften up their message. But John full of courage is like a man of war. So here's what I say, say to you, brothers and sisters. All my brothers and sisters here. Be moved by this man's fiery zeal and boldness. Be moved by this. This boldness that he shows right here. Okay. If you, there's a verse in Proverbs that says, All the utterances of his lips were in righteousness. There was nothing crooked or perverted in him. They were all straightforward to him who understands. Think of the boldness of this man as he confronts the sin. And be moved by it. Brothers and sisters, this is the John the Baptist from Matthew 3 who stood up boldly and preached in the wilderness and said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And whenever the Pharisees came around arrogantly, looking on with arrogance as if to, as if to look down upon him, he looks at him and he says, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath, wrath to come? Be moved by this man's boldness, his straightforwardness. It's the same John the Baptist. Remember Luke chapter 7. Jesus said this. Luke, uh, Jesus said this in Luke 7. He says, what did you go out to see? And he's talking about John the Baptist. What did you go out to see? A man clothed with soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. What's he saying? John was not a man of softness. He was not a dainty, gorgeous, pampered man. He was not that. He wasn't afraid of suffering. He didn't hold back his words. He was willing to proclaim the truth. Even the hard truth. Even if it meant persecution, rejection, his reputation, his freedom. And he proclaims the truth. So here's what we have here. We've got Herod. He's here. Okay. Open, wicked sin. John the Baptist confronts him. And you got this other other person that's mentioned here named Herodias. Who is this person mentioned in verse 19? Herodias. This is the wicked woman behind all of it. She's the Jezebel who left her husband to go after a man richer and more powerful. This is this woman. Okay. And And John the Baptist has confronted them over and over again. And they're getting tired of it. And they both, if you read the account in Matthew... Herod and Herodias, they both hate him and they both want to kill him for this. And yet they don't do it. Why? Because Herod is trembling. He's scared at John the Baptist. He's a just, he's a holy man. So he doesn't do anything. He, in fact, in fact, Herod protects John the Baptist in one way, not because of some uh, admiral characteristic of himself, but because he's scared of him, but he protects him from Herodias in this passage. Now, this is where we're at then. Herod and Herodias, they hate John. Because he speaks the truth. 
John the Baptist is stuck in prison. He can't travel around and preach like he's been doing. But then one day, an, an opportune day comes for Herodias to get her revenge. And that's where we come to verse 21. Verse 21 through 29. This is a faithful servant of the Lord. John the Baptist, faithful servant of the Lord. And he's about to get murdered at a young age. Murdered at a young age. Verse 21. Then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias, Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who, were, who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Right, let's get the plain sense of this. So what just happened? An opportune day comes up for Herodias to get revenge on John the Baptist for calling out her sin. And that opportune day is when Herod throws a party. It's a birthday party. A celebration for himself. And he invites all the high ups, the nobles, the high officers, the chief men of Galilee. He just invites them all. And this would have been a gross display of sinfulness. Drunkenness. Lust, scandalous female dancers. And at some point, Herodias' daughter comes in and does her wicked dance. And here's these men there. They're inflamed with lust. They're gawking at her. Herod's looking at his own niece. And then slash his stepdaughter. And he's looking on her with lustful intent. He's overcome absolutely overcome by his lustful eyes and therefore he does something very very stupid let me pause by the way anytime if you look on with lust whether it be like him looking on a woman right there or whether it be on a computer screen you will do very very stupid things let me give you a warning this sin of looking on the lust in this way will lead you deeper into evil than you ever intended to go. Do not play around with it. Listen to the Bible. Proverbs 7.22 says this. He went after her, enticing woman. He went after her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stocks till an arrow struck his liver as a bird hastens to the snare. He did not know it would cost his life don't play with it. It'll take you further than you ever wanted to go. Proverbs, right after that, Proverbs 7, 24 says, Now, therefore, listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her path, for she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. Make war on this sin of looking on with lustful eyes to women. Back to the story. 
overcome with this lust, Herod does something very stupid. He looks at her and he says, I'll give you whatever you want up to half my kingdom. Just tell me what do you want. I'll give you whatever you want. And of course, this girl, she goes back to her mama, Herodias, and says, what should I do? And she says, tell him you want John the Baptist's head cut off, put on a platter and brought back to me. So this daughter goes in, asks for it. The king kicks himself. Now, this is not, this is not a good characteristic of him. Okay. He just, he just knows that he's backed into a corner now, right? He's given the oath to this girl. And it's not that he wants to be a man of his word, but those men were standing there and they heard what he said. The men who were surrounded, they heard what he said. And he, he would rather murder an innocent man than to humble himself in his pride. And so he sends an executioner. And the executioner goes and cuts his head off. Brings the head on a platter. You think about how wicked this is. How much wickedness is going here? Brings the head on a platter. And a young girl takes the head of somebody and takes it to her mama. John's disciples, a little bit later, retrieve this headless body of John the Baptist. And they go bury him in a tomb. What a sad day. What a sad day. Imagine the disappointment. Imagine the confusion of his disciples. God, why'd you allow this to happen? Can you imagine that? Why'd you allow this to happen, God? The greatest man born of a woman, Matthew eleven eleven, and he just spent the last year of his life shut up in prison, silenced by the government, suffering even to the point of death, even a gruesome death, and even at a young age, in his early 30s, just a little older than Jesus. But wait a minute. I thought the more spiritual you are, the more health, wealth, great things, success that God gives you, right? Surely the greatest man born, born of a woman, surely he would get the American dream, right? Surely. John the Baptist, greatest man born of a woman, suffers, dies under cruel punishment. No amazing story. No amazing story of, of an angel coming in and delivering him in the moment. Although God could do that. But we don't have anything like that here. He's just beheaded. End of story. Move on. Next phase. Now, if you imagine that this happened today, you imagine a disappointment today. You think about the disappointment that this happens today, you say stuff like this. Why did God allow this to happen? Why did God take him at such a young age? God, don't you know that if you would have let him be alive, he could have preached you and he could have brought great glory to you all across this world? The story of this godly, influential man dying at a young age, suffering and coming under a gruesome death is a wake-up call to us. It should wake us up to this fact. Listen to Isaiah 55, 8. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We have got to snap out of the Disneyland approach to get God's will. Sometimes God will, God's will is the path to suffering for his glory. And we see this and we awaken to this in John the Baptist's life. Ultimately, our desire is to what? Bring glory to King Jesus, right? To bring pleasure and glory to King Jesus. And oftentimes, God is most glorified in us when we enjoy him, not in our prosperity, but in our suffering. 
What does this teach you about suffering? God, wouldn't you have been more glorified if you got to keep preaching? And God says, no. No, I get the most glory of his life when he spends the last year of his life in a prison and then he dies by beheading. And there I get the most glory. Romans eleven thirty three says this. Oh, the depths. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who is this God that looks at suffering this way? Now this brings us right up to our application. You'll flip your page over if you got a sheet. Let's make some applications from the story, okay? I want to give you three points of application. They're almost the same, but they get more detailed on each point, okay? Number one application, embrace suffering. Embrace suffering. What I want to talk about very quickly is a Christian view of suffering. Embrace suffering. Now, I'm talking about suffering on a broad extent here, okay? In a minute, we're going to get more specific, like suffering as a result of you preaching truth. But right now, I'm just talking suffering. When Johnny, Johnny Erickson Tata dove off in the Chesapeake Bay and broke her neck, that wasn't necessarily suffering because she was proclaiming the truth. It's just suffering in general, okay? So here's what I want to say to you. Point number one, Christians will suffer. Rejection, sickness, persecution, hardship, death, disease, cancer. Christians will suffer. I want you to know this so you do not get caught off guard. Now, allow me to do this. I just want to bathe us. I want to bathe us in Bible verses that just drive this point home. I just want to, I'm just going to, a bunch of Bible verses just to drive this point home. I want you to walk away feeling knowing I will suffer. Christians do suffer and let this let these verses annihilate any unhealthy american idolatry you have towards comfort or ease listen to these verses matthew 5 10 blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my namesake Luke 9, 23. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily, his torture instrument daily. Just take it up daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, will save it. Acts 5, 41. The apostles are being persecuted. Here we go. Acts 5, 41. So they departed from the presence of the council. Have, they were threatened, right? Okay, they departed from the presence of the council that was threatening them. And it says they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Acts 14, 22. This is how Paul strengthens brand new churches. He strengthened the souls of the disciples saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 3.12, claim this promise, claim it. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecutions. Philippians 1.29, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you. It's a gift to you, not only to believe, but to suffer for his sake. Do you hear that? It's a gift to you. 
First Peter 2.21, that's what Tyndale wrote to John Frith. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. First Peter 4.1, it's that mind I've been telling you we got to have. Since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Hebrews 13.12. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered. Jesus suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, camp, bearing his reproach, bearing his suffering. And then you have our passage today. Think about it. Mark 6, 14 through 29. Our passage today. Greatest man born of a woman. Last year of his life, prison. Head chopped off. No glorious deliverance by an angel. Christ, excuse me, Christians will suffer. No exceptions. No exceptions. Okay. Now, why? Why does God ordain it this way? Why does God ordain that his people will suffer? Why? In answering this question, we're going to do a little bit here to answer it. And in answering this question is free. It's empowering to answer this question. Why would God ordain suffering? Let me give you a statement here, okay? Here it is. There is more God. Your, your ultimate goal is to glorify God, right? That's what you want? You want to exalt Jesus? That's what we are created for. That's why we are saved. There's more God-glorifying potential in your suffering than in your prosperity. There's more why? Why would God ordain it this way? Because there's more God-glorifying potential in your suffering than there is in your prosperity. Let me say it another way. Why would God allow suffering? Why would He even call you in and summon you in to, to embrace suffering as a gift? Why would God do that? Because the ultimate goal of our lives is to glorify God. And God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him, especially in the midst of pain. Especially in the midst of pain. Now, you say, what do you mean by that? Okay. You can be satisfied in God when everything's okay. Everything's fine. Nothing's wrong. No suffering. And I'm satisfied in God. And that brings Him glory. It brings him glory. It does. You're satisfied in God. Everything's okay. But here's what people can say to you. They say, well, he's happy because he's healthy. He's satisfied because he's got stuff. She's just praising God because she, she has a baby. She's had a baby in her womb. Or he's glorifying God. Why? Because life is good, right? But now, now let all of it be stripped away. Health, gone. Wealth, prosperity, gone. I can't have a baby. Life is not good. Life is a wreck. Life is painful. And yet you're satisfied in Him still. And you still, deep down, you say, and it hurts in deepest pain, and yet you still, He's enough. God is still enough. And now those same people look from the outside and they, and they say this. They say, why? Why is He still glorifying God? Why is He still praising God? Why is he still satisfied in God? They say Christ alone, Christ alone must be his satisfaction. Christ alone must be his joy. This makes Jesus look good. 
This is the reason Philippians 129 calls your suffering a gift. It's been granted to you, not just to believe on him, but to suffer, to suffer for his namesake. You're given a gift which enables you. You're given the gift of suffering, which enables you to do more fully that which you ultimately are created to do to exalt the Savior. Suffering's a gift to you. So here's what I'm saying. So I'm saying, let me say it again. Why? Why does God ordain suffering? Suffering, suffering, there's more God-glorifying, like I said earlier, more God-glorifying potential in your suffering than in your prosperity, right? Okay, think about this. Suffering has the unique ability to pinpoint your glorifying to God. Suffering has the unique ability to uh, shape up and, and make it specific where your praise lands. Suffering can do that. You say, what do you mean? Think about the life of Job. God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Okay, he's glorifying me. What's Job, what does Satan say? He says, because you put a hedge up around him. He's healthy. He's prospering. And his children are healthy. And they're prospering too. And look at all the stuff that you've given him. So God does what? Allows Job to come under suffering. Which is going to pinpoint that glory to God. It's going to, it's going to make it more specific. He allows him to come under suffering. And he takes his health. Gone. Wealth. Gone. Children. They all die at one time. Can you imagine the pain? And right in the midst of this pain. Job looks up and he says. Naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked, naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord satisfied in God right in the middle of pain our great God is greatly glorified when this happens you see how that pinpointed Job's glory in God the whole world could look on and they couldn't say it's because of his health it's because of his wealth it's because of stuff he had nobody could say that even Satan himself couldn't say it it says God alone Christ alone must be satisfying not just God's stuff or God's blessings so you think about it. John the Baptist. John the Baptist, why would you choose to speak up the truth knowing that it can mean your life, knowing that it can mean suffering? Why would you, John the Baptist, why would you choose to do that? And John the Baptist, my ultimate goal is to glorify God. I just want to exalt Christ. And if that means the path of suffering is a way to get there, I do it with great joy. Now apply this to your Christian view of suffering. How do you think about suffering? How do you react to suffering day after day? If the ultimate goal of your life is self-satisfaction, you will avoid and despise all suffering. You'll avoid every road to suffering that comes up because it works against your ultimate goal, self-satisfaction. If your ultimate goal is God exaltation, that's your ultimate goal. I just want to exalt Christ. Then you will embrace and rejoice in sufferings. You'll embrace every path of suffering that comes your way outside of your will. Because this is God's way for you to do what you ultimately want to do. Exalt Christ. Now many people will say this. They'll say, well, you don't just go out looking for suffering, right? It's like, what are you telling me, Ryan? Just go find some suffering today somewhere and go jump in the middle of it, right? And people will say that. 
Okay? And people are going to wrestle over this thought. What do I do? Just go look for suffering? They'll wrestle over this thought. And it'll paralyze some people. In fact, for some people, some of us, it'll become a mantra that just allows us to stay in our comfort and stay in our ease. What do I do? Just go looking for it? Well, let me try to help with that question now. What do you do? Just go look for suffering? No, you don't just go out of this room and you go find you some suffering. You don't do that. But you do make choices day after day. Decision after decision. From big decisions to small decisions. You make them day after day after day. And over and over again, those choices will come up against your flesh. I don't mean just martyrdom here. I mean the way you deal with your money, the way you deal with your time, the way you speak at work or school, wherever you are. Just the way anything in life goes. And you'll make these choices. And if it's self-satisfaction is your ultimate goal, you will always, always lean towards ease and comfort in the path of least resistance. You'll always do that. But if in the middle of everyday decisions, remember Paul said, I die daily. Not just talking about one time at the end. I die daily. He had choices all the time that he would choose rather to suffer for the glory of God if that was the path that God had him on. So, don't go out looking for suffering, but think about your day-to-day choices. Think about Jesus saying, take up your cross daily and follow me. And you said, is my choice fit? Is that day-to-day choices fit with take up my cross daily and follow the Lord Jesus? Let me share two verses and move on to that next application. Two verses here. Just listen to the attitude towards suffering in these verses. Listen to this. Philippians 3.10. Paul's praying. This is like a prayer from Paul. Listen. That I might know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. What? Listen to Paul's invitation to Timothy. 2 Timothy 1.8. He says this. Timothy, share with me, share with me in the sufferings of the gospel. Wow. Share with me in the sufferings of the gospel. Let me get that second application. Here's what it says. It says, embrace suffering as inevitable in the life of those who stand firm on and propagate truth. If you stand firm on truth, that means you look to the word of God for your truth and you stand firm on it no matter what the, the world of lies says. And what, what they want you to do, you stand firm on truth. And if you propagate truth, you preach truth. You preach, spread truth as far and wide as possible. And if you do these things, suffering is inevitable for you. It's inevitable for you. Now we're getting more specific, right? We're not just talking specific. We're not talking suffering in general. We're talking suffering as a result of you standing on truth. Anywhere, everywhere, in your workplace, whatever, and proclaiming truth and spreading truth. That's the kind of suffering we're talking. We're talking about suffering that can be avoided. If you don't stand or you don't proclaim, it can be avoided, right? John the Baptist unwaveringly, think about the story. He unwaveringly stood on truth. John the Baptist fearlessly proclaimed truth. John the Baptist was unapologetic in his belief in the truth and he paid for it with his life. And I'm saying you will too. Think about it. We're God's people, right? And God calls us the pillar and the ground of truth. That's that's what we're called. But we live where? We live in a world 
that 1 John 5, 19 says is under the sway of the wicked one, the father of lies. Do you really think that you will get no opposition? You think you'll have no speed bumps? No resistance to the truth? We're called the light of the world. Right? Jesus calls us the light of the world. Ephesians 6, 12 says that we live in this present darkness. Do you really think that we'll just go untouched? As we proclaim truth and we stand on truth, you just think we'll go untouched? You're going to face opposition to the truth. It'll come in many, many forms. Hate, ridicule, threats, physical attack, and every single one of them is meant to squelch your holding up of the truth. Every one of them. All the opposition to the truth is to, is to squelch you lifting up the truth, standing on the truth, spreading the truth. Listen to this verse, Acts 4, 17. As the apostles proclaimed truth, listen to what the opponent said. But so that it spreads no further. Do you hear that? So that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak no, to no man in this name. Have you seen this kind of opposition in your life? As you uphold truth, as you propagate truth, have you seen this sort of opposition anywhere? Family, culture, job, school, street corner. Have you seen this kind of opposition? Will you let the fear of men, I mean, disapproval of man or attacks of man, will you allow to squelch your standing on the truth and propagating the truth? You have to embrace the fact that you will be hated by all for Christ's namesake. Listen to Luke 6.22. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Luke 6.26 says it like this. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so so they did to the father. to the false prophets. Now you might say, well, I don't have any enemies. I think everybody speaks well of me. Could it be that you're playing it safe with your words? No risk. Could it be that you make no hard stands for the truth of God's word? Could it be that the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of God's word, is non-existence and therefore all men speak well of me? As I call you to embrace suffering, embrace suffering as you move forward with the truth of God's word and stand on the truth of God's word. As I call you into that, what that means, I'm calling you in to take risk with your words. Take risk with your words. Stand for the truth. Proclaim it. Preach the gospel far and wide and take risk with your location. Not just around those that pat you on the back, but take the light into the darkness. Third application. This is specific to Grace Community Church. It's what GCC stands for. Grace Community Church, embrace suffering in our pursuit of reaching the unreached people groups on earth. Okay. We're getting more specific, right? Not just suffering in general and not just suffering from proclaiming and standing on truth, but suffering that results from taking truth to unreached peoples. And by unreached, I mean those who have no idea, the countries, the people groups of the world that have zero access to the gospel. We've said it over and over again. We as a church, we want to do that, right? We want to take the gospel to unreached people 
groups. This is given to us in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, verse 18 through 20. Go make disciples, not just as many people as you can, but of all nations, all these people groups. Make disciples. Well, there's some who have no access to the gospel. And we say as a church, and if you gave me time, I feel like I can venture this from the word. But we say as a church that we want to take the gospel to those places. Listen, if we're going to do that, we must embrace suffering. It will take suffering. If you think about the context, let me just say this quickly. The passage we're in, the whole passage from Mark 6, 1, when Jesus goes to Nazareth and they don't believe him. All the way to Mark 6, 30, when they returned from that mission trip they went on. Okay, they went out on a mission trip, it brought them back. If you look at that whole section... That whole section fits this application. And here's what I mean. Jesus knew he was about to send his disciples out. Did he not? He knew it was time. I've been training them, making them fishers of men. I'm about to send them out. Okay, he knew that. And Dustin taught on that last week. He knew that. He knew he was going to do that, right? Now, but first he goes to Nazareth and they experience extreme rejection. He takes them to the place where they tried to push him off a cliff. That's the place he wants to take them before he shoots them out on their first missionary journey? Wouldn't it be a better idea right after Jesus rebuked the storm and it stopped? Just send them out all jacked up on faith. Wouldn't that been better? Or right after, right after he raised that dead girl up from the dead? What if he sent them out right then? Just, just full of faith. Go out. Christ raises the dead. But he doesn't. He stops takes them to Nazareth where there's this God-shocking unbelief. I can't believe how unbelieving these people. These are the people that try to push him off the cliff. He takes them there first. Why? I'm saying he wants to teach them, you must learn rejection. You must learn a 1 Peter 4-1 mind if you're going to go as mission to the world. You've got to. The mind to suffer. You've got to. Now, then he sends them out and what does he say to them? He sends them out and he says, hey, you're going out on this on this uh, this mission here, and they're going to reject you. And when they do, you just knock the dust off your feet. He lets them know that they're going to be rejected. He tells them that beforehand. And then we get this random story right in between the sending out and the coming back in verse 30. And we get this random story about a bold, faithful servant of the Lord, John the Baptist, getting his head cut off for propagating truth. What do you think the Lord's trying to teach us? That this, this is the lesson. This is the lesson. This is the lesson in my mind. This is the lesson of the whole section here. The lesson is we must embrace. We must know that we're going to face. If we want to do this, a church that takes the gospel to the unreached places of this earth, chalk it up. Rejection, suffering, persecution, pain. It's going to come. Now, here's what I want to summon this to. In fact, let me ask this question again first. The question I asked at the beginning, here's what I said. I said, what will be the number one hindrance to our church taking the gospel to unreached places and planting churches there? What will be the number one hindrance to us doing that? And what I told you is that we wouldn't have this 1 Peter 4.1 mind, the mind to suffer like Christ. And I'm telling you, if we don't heed the lesson that Jesus was teaching his disciples by taking his disciples to Nazareth first, we will not, we will never reach the unreached. If we don't heed the lesson of this whole passage from verse 1 to verse 30, we will never reach the unreached. Here's what I'm summoning into, summoning you into this. Embrace, embrace suffering 
rejection, persecution, pain as what? As the result of reaching the unreached and as a strategy for reaching the unreached. You say, what's the difference? Well, obviously it's the result, right? It's the result of reaching the unreached is pain, is suffering. Why? Because they don't want you to come there. There's a reason it's unreached. There's laws that get you preaching the gospel there. There's people hostile. They, they don't want to hear it. And they'll kill you for it. They'll beat you. They'll throw you in the jail. Did you see that? They're unreached for a reason. And we as a church are saying, we want to reach them. There's places where there's warring factions of clans. And they're warring against each other. And people come in and they pillage villages and they rape the women. 99% Muslim. So it's the result of mission, but also here's something encouraging. Suffering is not just the result of reaching unreached. Suffering is actually God's ordained strategy. It's his strategy for reaching the unreached. Why do I say that? Listen to John. You can turn with me. John chapter 12. John 12, 24. Just listen to it. 12, 24. I heard a... Uh, a guy that came in, he, uh, he said he came in this group of like real wealthy business leaders, very wealthy business leaders. And they were asked, it's like a Christian business association, but uh, just seemed like it was like a high fluting thing. <clears throat> he said he walked in and the people asked him, they said, what is the n- number one way that we can, for evangelization of the world, so we can go ahead and give to that and get it over with? And he said, martyrdom. <laughs> And, and uh, somebody with great courage said, okay, what's the second greatest way? Okay, this is what I'm telling you. This is a strategy of God, okay? Strategy of God. John chapter 12, verse 24, listen to it. Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. That's a fact. What's Jesus' application? Verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This idea, does it mean hate your life? Hate your life, willing to take my life and it suffer and it die in whatever way. From small ways to big ways, my life suffers and dies. It's done away with for the sake of bearing fruit to Christ Jesus for his glory, for God exaltation all over the earth. Christ Jesus came to save. And a result of his salvation mission was suffering. But it wasn't just a result. The, the central strategy for his, for his salvation mission was suffering. And now he, here we are as a church. And we say, we want to send out people to the unreached places on this earth. We actually want to reach those places. Well, suffering will be the result of that. And suffering is a strategy of God for the penetration of the gospel into unreached territory. Here's what happens. They hear the truth through our mouths preaching the gospel. They hear the truth. But then they see, what do they see? They see the worthiness of that truth as we suffer. We take what Christ had done in his sufferings and we, like Paul said in Galatians 6, we bear in our body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And the gospel goes forward. One more verse, Colossians 1.24. I now rejoice in my sufferings. 
Let me pause there. I rejoice. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings, which means what I'm summoning you to is not a life of misery. I'm summoning to a life of pain and suffering, but joy in Christ Jesus, satisfied in him. I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. What's lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Beware of heresy here. It's not that his suffering and his affliction was not enough to make atonement for sin. So I got to do some suffering on the side to help help it go. That's not right. It's heresy, right? So what's lacking? What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ that Paul says, I fill up in my body by my suffering. I fill up in my flesh what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. What's lacking is somebody to take the message of this gospel to unreached places and put on display. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. It shows the character of this message. They hear the message. They hear the truth through my mouth and they see the worthiness of it through my suffering. And over and over again through the Bible and throughout history, this is how the Word of God has gone to unreached places through suffering. Through suffering. Now, what does this mean for us as a church? So Grace Community Church, what does this mean for us? Let's just get real personal for a minute. I want to put the weight on you. I want you to pray. I want you to be forced to pray after I tell you this. If we keep going down this road, we keep moving down this road, we want to be a church that takes the gospel to the unreached and plants churches there. If we keep going down this road, suffering will come very close to us. It will come very close to home. We will very likely experience this suffering very close to ourselves, okay? Imagine it. We gather around a team of brothers and sisters. We love them, man. You know these people. These aren't random missionaries. You know them. And you love them. And you gather around them. You lay hands on them. And after you lay hands on them, you begin to pray for them because you know you, as a church, about to do like Acts 13 and lay hands and send them out. And boom, you do it, you pray for them and they're gone. Can you imagine? Months later, you get an email. Imprisonment. Persecution. Suffering. Death. Oh, the pain of death. And you feel the pain and it wrenches your heart and it hurts. Don't you see that if we don't have a 1 Peter 4.1 mind, a mind to suffer, if we're not like John the Baptist, ready to lay it all down, even if it means suffering for the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will never do what we talk about so much at Grace Community Church. But if, not only in the big things, not just martyrdom, but in the small things, we die. And we die. And we die daily. We do it. I mean, I, I don't know if you need an example here. You say, I don't have the money. Let me give you a small one. I don't have the money to go out. I'm talking about, ah, I'm saying, hypothetical here. I don't have the money to go out to eat this week. Why? I can't go out to eat. I got to eat at the house. Why? To spin it, give it to the poor, spin it to the nations, whatever. I'm just trying to give you a practical example. But if we help each other, what if we do that? Because we'll never do it if we don't have this first Peter 4 one mind to suffer. But if we bind together, Help each other day by day to take up our cross and to endure hardships as good soldiers of Christ Jesus. Come together and pray that God will give us the strength to take up that cross every single day. Go forth to Jesus outside the gate, bearing his suffering. Help one another to deny ourselves. 
Maybe God would take a weak group of Christians like Grace Community Church, a weak group like us, and maybe God would use us to fulfill the Great Commission and the gospel would go to unreached places on this earth and a place that did not have the gospel. Yeah, they would have it. Pray. Father, thank you for your great word. Please, God, direct every heart in this room, including myself. Please direct us, God, to worship you. And give us a first Peter 4 1 mind, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.